Welcome, everybody, to the Weekly Tech Show, hey, presented to you by Next Level Consulting. Next Level Consulting is a Phoenix-based IT and business consulting company, and our philosophy is to help your business stabilize, optimize, and automate. Check us out at www.nxt-lvl.co. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your co-host, Charlie, a.k.a. Asini, and we also have our other co-host, Lloyd, a.k.a. Meet. Yeah, thank you. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the stream. Tonight is episode six, and we're deep diving into stabilization. Thanks, Lloyd. No problem. All right. Tonight's sponsor is Gimbal Brew. <laughs> when getting tipsy, at least your beer is level-headed. Check them out at www.gimbal-brew.com. Gotta Get love yours Gimbal today. Brew. Never want that beer to fall. Right? A fallen soldier is not a good one. Cool. Let's go into the overview as we normally do. So we start off yep. with the definition of our topic. What is our topic? The history of our topic. How our topic works. Uh, this day in tech segment where we talk about what happened on this day in technology. Infrastructure redundancy. Disaster recovery plans. Product management. Contr change control. Uh, the weekly top 10 segment by Lloyd who talks about the 10 uses of our topic of this week. And oh, then yeah. finally the mailbag segment. Okay. Yeah, let's break into it. So what is stabilization? That's the big question today. Uh, it's a big word uh, that is kind of vague, right? But um, there's a holistic view to take on this. And the way to describe it is the process of becoming or being made unlikely to change, fail, or decline. This is talking about specifically your IT infrastructure, your applications, basically being able to operate as a business. And right. with that stabilization, you are uh, guaranteeing the work you put in gives you the value that you need out of it, right? And that's what stabilization is. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Lloyd. So uh, let's talk about the history of stabilization. So this is defined as the growth and expansion phase is really an exciting time for any small business. The primary right. goal of a business is to get customers, deliver the product or service to reach the break-even point as quickly as possible. Um, one, once That's the break even the black, point, right. right. Once the break even point is reached, um, really profitability should then follow, but businesses often underestimate the intense pressure that accompanies rapid business growth. And that's kind of right. the normal process of when a business starts doing well, right. Is, uh, they start to expand, um, which is usually a, a good thing, but also a time of a lot of crazy things going. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that for a second. I think uh, pretty much it's one of those types of things that can creep up on you. These are the things that could sink your business, but you might not notice that uh, orders are being skipped because of frequency or because someone's overloaded in the tasks they have, right? So very interesting uh, thing to talk about because it's almost hard to see how stabilization can help your business succeed. Right. What's the common issues? Oh, with stabilization, yeah. Um, <clears throat> we've got cash flow crunches. So you might be able to process business, but then it's suddenly an order for 10,000 comes in. <laughs> yep. You can't process business. And I've seen even on like um, common reality shows like Shark Tank, they are coming there for funding pretty much because they have an order in hand they can't fulfill. Their business is at a standstill, and that's what could happen with a cash flow crunch. And maybe also, you want maybe you want to purchase that big building and move move into a larger location, right? Those are all things that are that right. 
hard gap maybe to, it's to jump yep it's part of being able to have a strong business stance for the next several years and if you didn't have the funds to move into a newer location that could not only house your business appropriately but for growth as well then you could be painting yourself into a corner totally so another common issue is operation operational and in, uh, inefficiency right so kind of what we mean by this is that oh, uh, usually Lots when a company expands and booms, right? So even if you look on the infrastructure side, uh, a lot of those things kind of come from maybe you're just spinning up different server environments at a nonstop pace, right? Right. Um, maybe copies and copies. Copies and copies and copies. And now really uh, you might be having to buy new hardware because of that too. Right. And really it's important to think about that most likely as a business grows rapidly, inefficiencies are only bound to happen because it's not that you mean to or you're cutting corners it's just there's so much going on that you pretty right. much have to just race to get whatever uh the business thing you're trying to accomplish done exactly and as you stack on more and more things that you're doing more and more servers or whatever that you're creating suddenly you have more and more operational expenses and eventually it'll get to the point where you need to take care of this go look at it directly and see what you can do to make it more efficient Right. These are the tasks we do at businesses that need stabilization. All right. So, yeah, the other thing we want to do about uh, history of stabilization and common issues that we can see are notice uh, any of your system outages um, by t starting to, you know, record, uh, report on, and then audit uh, system outages gives you the ability to see uh, the the kinds of things that you need to. Uh, with those outages, you can uh, stop your business right there in the street, right? Not being able to process a payment means that you didn't get money that day. And then not being able to process a payment might uh, drive away customers. Totally. Yeah, system outages, terrible. Black market. Whenever possible. Oh, definitely. Or avoid those good things. <laughs> Oh yeah. So uh, another common issue is negative feedback to the customer service issues. So uh, as we talked about before, maybe uh, employees might be overworked. You know, those things can, can those uh, uh, negativities can creep into even how they interact with uh, customers, right? You might have a call right. center or you might have um, uh, other um, outlet means of retail locations uh, where you have yep. employees. And really, if you just had a system outage, uh, it's very possible they're not very happy either. So that doesn't help uh, with customer service issues. So growing too fast, a lot of times there can be negative feedback um, with just how the business is expanding and changing. Totally. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing where uh, suddenly they can't even handle the in number of uh, requests by customers. So they stop answering or they're very slow to respond. People will uh, run away from that kind of customer service. There's people out there that will take care of customers. You've got to be one of them or you will not have any. And then uh, the next one, yeah. yeah, down the line here, overworked employees, right? These are where you almost, it's really hard to notice this one, huh, Charlie? Yeah. 
You can have someone where they're coming into work every day and uh, maybe they make a couple less jokes. But the problem here is the fact that they are super stressed. They don't show it at work because they don't want to do that to their job, right? So this is how it's really difficult to notice. So one of the things you do is you measure an employee's output against industry standards and things and you make sure that what they're doing is fits within a workday that's acceptable right and so you can notice this process that's taking them several days to complete and has a high failure rate is driving them insane right and mm -hmm. so uh, you can not only raise morale but increase productivity all these things don't stop your business but can start to slowly grind it to a halt right and a, and a good uh, sign of overworked employees is if an employee that's worked with you for a while or under you if you're a manager and all of a sudden there starts to be issues with that employee you know it's like mm -hmm. a good time to look at what you're trying to ask them to do in the amount of time ask them to do it in so that's a good indicator of finding ways good employees that all of a sudden turn bad might be something that you want to look at as a business what are we what's happening internally to our company and how can we right yeah, so another thing is, a common issue is, yeah go, oh, ahead, go ahead uh is lack of documentation Oh yeah. So as the race to get bigger happens, uh, documentation is a tough subject to talk about period because it's a, a difficult thing to get people to do on a consistent basis. And it's oh, not yeah. because they're lazy and they don't want to do it. It's just as uh, your business is growing very quickly, you know, demands of them are probably higher and uh, it's easier just to go plow through a bunch of work uh, with the knowledge you have and what you've learned and to worry about writing down every step because that, really extends a timeline of anything so oh yeah it's not that it's sometimes a, we demand yeah. this of resources and we say we need that uh system back up or we need this application deployed and we need this release done this month and they say those are the priorities work on it and so there's almost no direction for prioritization of documents right right that has to be ingrained from the top and rewarded when it's done it can't be something where they do it and you're relying on it during a disaster, it almost has to be treated like a golden ticket when people write documentation. Right. And because of all these issues, really the need for stabilization arises. And that's kind of where we kind of come in and we've thought about it a lot as a business, as Next Level Consulting. Right. We try to think the different phases a business goes through. And that's the idea of doing uh, stabilization, optimization, and automation. And, uh, this really is the kind of things that we found that uh, hurts a business. And even a business can go from a small to medium and a medium to large and still have stabilization issues um, that, are, that come, right? So it's not yep. impossible. They just need to be addressed. Totally. So that's kind of what this whole talk is about, is how um, we found uh, to help businesses kind of get past that into moving into the optimization phase. Right. So how do we do that? Uh, with the boots on the ground approach, what we do is we look at some key factors that you may or may not be doing as a business. And then we work to improve those uh, facets of uh, IT discipline. And that in itself uh, starts the course uh, correction of your business to be a more stable entity. Some key factors below will start the process of a business to increase stability, to ensure operational readiness. Number one is infrastructure redundancy. So servers die, computers fault. These things are known. So if you plan for it and put the costs in on the front end, you can save massive costs during an outage where it might kill your business during a holiday season, but you cannot 
be operating, it would be a tragedy. Yeah, most businesses only go into the black during some whole, that's their whole cycle. Is yeah. Keep alive during the non-holiday seasons and then uh, make your money when Christmas and other holidays happen. Absolutely. All right, number two is disaster recovery plans. So uh, it's good to think about having infrastructure redundancy and creating mm -hmm. that. But what happens when a disaster happens? What happens when a, a meteor falls and crushes your uh, building or your where your data centers look? All these things are known to happen. Fires are common. All these things really uh, uh, set apart a mature business from one that isn't, in the sense that you've had the forethought to think about uh, buildings and uh, people and resources are only temporary ever in this world, right? So having a way to have a copy of those things in a different right. location is a super important thing. Absolutely. Yeah, let's go on here. Number three, project management. Uh, the way you do things, the discipline you have with execution of projects, uh, closing them out, documenting them properly, reporting on their progress. This project management process has to be uh, just like when you build a house, you have to follow the rules of the industry. Project management are the rules of the industry. If you're not doing it right, it's not going to be very effective. If you do it right, it's amazing how quickly things can get done, how uh, things are not missed, and how projects are successful. Right. Yeah. A methodology of doing things a consistent way, like you touched on, a way to, to uh, report on progress. It's easy to yeah. say, hey, go build 50 servers, but without some kind of reporting platform, you never really know where you are on the yep. project at any given time, right? And then maybe a main contributor of a project leaves. There's no documentation and you don't even know oh, what man. servers got completed and which ones didn't. So I've all these things kind of funnel into project management and having some oversight and insight into things that you do and projects within your company. Okay, and the, and the last big thing, key fact that we see is change control. So how many times has someone uh, brought a service down because they go, oh, I didn't know that patch would cause an issue or I didn't know oh. that key was not to open yep. the cage, but to, it actually shuts down so <laughs> many times. an appliance. All these things happen on a regular right. basis. And, I'm uh, well aware that this network cable does not have production running through oh, it. Oh, no, So let me definitely. just disconnect it quickly. It, it's a green one. It's not a red one. That it's means the, it must it's be not good. The red. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the real ones are red. This one's green. But someone put it in a hurry three weeks ago, and I didn't see it. Yeah, when so. there was an outage three weeks ago <laughs> that no one knew on a Sunday. And they go, oh, it was right. that cable. And they didn't have the red cables on hand. So all these Common are... tails at businesses right. that need stabilization. Common exactly. tails, right? Okay, let's move into This Day in Tech. Welcome, everybody, to This Day in Tech. On November 2nd, 1988, the Morris Worm, or, or Internet Worm of November 2nd, 1988, was the first computer worms distributed via the Internet. And it was the first to gain significant mainstream media attention. It also resulted in the first felony conviction in the U.S. under the 1986 Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. It was written by a graduate student at Cornell University, Robert Tappan Morris, and launched on November 2nd, 1988 from the computer systems of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a.k.a. MIT. And that was This Day in Tech.
Awesome. Hey, thank you, Charlie. Hey, thank you. Absolutely. Anytime. So let's move on to our next slide here. Infrastructure redundancy. So this is one of those big topics of stabilization. And infrastructure redundancy refers to the amount and intensity of backup, failover, or redundant resources in a computing environment. It defines the ability of a computing infrastructure to provide additional servers that may be deployed on runtime for backup, load balancing, or temporarily halting a primary server for maintenance purposes. It's very this nice. Is yeah. That is infrastructure redundancy. Very nice to be able to do work on a on a primary system by failing it over to a secondary one in the middle of the day if you awesome. Uh, absolutely. Another thing they do is uh, ephemeral patch them by rolling out the new servers with the patch on them and then slowly killing the old servers by rolling them off from underneath the load balancer. Nice. Yeah. Great way of doing uh, maintenance and giving your employees some free time on the, on their nights and weekends. On the weekends and yeah. nights. <laughs> yep. All right. Great. Okay. So the first piece uh, that we see for infrastructure redundancy is server replication. And this is defined by duplicating the entire contents of a server on another remote or in-house server that allows data to be restored if the primary server fails. So yep, copy. Uh, yep, making copies, making copies. Yep. So this could be uh, even um, within the same, maybe if you're using virtualization and using something like VMware and uh, vSphere and ESXi, right. right? This is a way maybe you might do, uh, what's the term called? The failover mode. Oh. Uh, fault tolerance, fault tolerance right? right? And that's uh, actually replicating that VM bit for bit, even in memory, on another host within your cluster. Yep. So all those things are great um, to do uh, for uh, server replication. Or, you know, you could be replicating across the wire into your oh, yeah. secondary to data another center. area. So uh, that's a big piece of infrastructure redundancy is server replication. Yep. The next piece there is daily and offsite backups. So back an offsite backup is literally backup that's stored offsite in a different physical location from where your main files are. Rather than just having copies of your files on two separate physical hardware devices, you have them stored in two far apart physical locations. Things like this city here and that city on the other coast. Uh, areas where there might be uh, two data centers close are not really uh, the things you're looking for. You want uh, several hundred miles. How big of an event? Do you uh, want yeah, to you got. You know, I think maybe it's related to where you are primarily located too, right? Absolutely. If you're in the East Coast and everywhere around you is really cold and crappy, then maybe you might go further. Yep. But if you're in Phoenix, like where, where we are, you know, maybe Nevada is good enough. Maybe Colorado or. LA, all those places are um, probably close enough to have separate, somewhat infrastructure from there. Exactly. Uh, from from uh, natural disasters. And also things, even things like um, if you do tape backups, right? Having a, a vendor come in and grab those tapes and move them into their archiving uh, locations where they have humidity control and all these great things is yep. another oh, example of offsite as opposed to just physical location. It could be uh, geographically disparate or disparate, but right. But now we're also talking about even somewhere close by, and just in case your building were to burn down or crazy thing. So yeah, very important. You take to whatever measures best will uh, serve your business. Right. 
Okay. Moving right along here. Moving right along. We have so re- things that yeah. we Go talked ahead. about with data centers being separate with redundant connectivity. Uh, that's where you're looking at um, two lines to the internet from your facility. A lot of big uh, data centers will have multiple carriers and you can actually get multiple hookups uh, to your environment. And then the things you want to look at with that are making sure that you have different vendors at different data centers. Uh, it is nice to do things like MPLS, but then you definitely want to have like a backup Cox communication business line or something where you can at least get a trickle of business going while you restore services. Right. And uh, more than just regular traditional networking, this really is everything. This could be your fiber and, you know, yep. your fiber switches. Uh, it could be telephone lines. All these things are things to think about with redundant connectivity. Maybe... You might have a you might have a microwave antenna on top of your building, right? Right. A cool solution like that that might be a backup solution for uh, internet connectivity. All these things are uh, really important to have. All and the way then, down to those copper cables uh, and and also the virtual switches inside your chassis. Oh yeah, well, the, yeah. We're, we're we're focusing more on the physical things, but yeah, even virtual things are things that can go bad. Right. So that discipline goes from the top all the way down to the bottom of the stack. Always look for places where there's a single point of failure and replace it with right. two. And then um, we also have secondary data center. So it's, this is a facility that can turn that can take on the responsibility in case of a primary data center failure. So things like recovery time will really depend on the business requirement. And a lot of those things will also, the business will ask you and go, you know, what's the cost? They like to think right. about the distance between data centers. You really try to get out of the business what the application criticality is. Um, you know, what if you can get the business to give you a top five or a top 10 list about what critical applications, most likely they won't know all the interdependencies of services for those. And that's where IT really comes in to help map those things out. You know, they exactly. might say our policy system is the most important thing, but what supports that maybe is a payment system in the back end. And exactly, you know, or an exchange email system under the yeah. Exactly. You know, email is usually always one of the top things uh, right. for a business to choose uh, in a top 10 list. Almost guaranteed that email um, is such a big part of business. So, um, And then really yeah, trying to, to narrow the scope of recovery. So, it's, right. you know, unless uh, your business has the ability and the funds and means to do everything, traditionally it doesn't make the sense because all those things are duplicating resources um, and also uh, really... Uh, can get really expensive, right? If you're trying to even duplicate uh, useless file shares that really don't have mission-critical data on it. Exactly. Um, you might never even get done your DR operation to be able to do testing, uh, which we talk about later on. So really try to narrow the focus, get the business to give you the primary uh, drivers of the business, and then try to yep. you know control the cost and be smart about the distance between uh, where you choose your data center. Perfect. Thank you. Awesome. Very good. Let's move on here a bit more on infrastructure. This is our last one on it. And basically, there's a couple of points we wanted to make sure we talked about. The other things we want to look at is data replication. So we've done servers in multiple locations. One of those disciplines is definitely getting your data replicated, but it is a more complicated conversation. Things like... Uh, Database replication can be offered by the vendors themselves. 
one of the disciplines we like to use at uh, Next Level is to make sure whatever you do, you do it on the lowest operating level. Mm -hmm. So uh, sand backups, we love that. Snapshots, all sand replication type activities. Do it at the lowest level, better, yeah, totally. In my opinion, right, way better than uh, a OS level or a, an application level uh, snapshot and backup. All right, Pattern, power interruptions in UPS. We always yep. love these fun times. I don't know how oh, many uh, hours I've spent in a data center uh, because of power interruptions. A, a lot, a lot, a lot. Yep. So a power outage is a short-term or long-term loss of electric power in a particular area. So, you know, if you have your stuff uh, co-load uh, co or co-located at a data center, usually they have really good policies about um, what they'll do in a case of a power interruption. Hopefully all the, the whips that you have connected to your racks are connected to overhead power um, right. that is uh, redundant by batteries or UPS, right? And then hopefully right. they have some kind of generator for long-term outages that they can run some power on diesel and keep stuff moving. Um, it's yep. always good and, to be and hope mindful. hope the amperage is sufficient. Yeah. Hope the PDUs are sufficient. All these things that you get provided by a data center, you have to make sure that they're rated properly for your load. If it's the holiday season and everything's running really high, you could pop your whole pod, it could all go down. Right. That's why we always look at redundant power within the racks you use too. You know, two separate yep. power sources, at least overhead, um, that hopefully are going to two different circuits uh, and then having each uh, of your physical devices connected on one side and side of the rack, rack for the individual circuits. Always smart things. Okay, human resources. Oh yeah, so. Last point we want to talk about is we call it human resources. It's a it's weird one for infrastructure redundancy, but we think it's still it's that something. file cabinet inside of Bob's mind <laughs> over there. He knows exactly how to get that uh, mid-range server back up and what to do to that table. And then everything's smooth as butter for the rest of the day. But the day he retires, he didn't write it down and we don't know how to do it anymore. And suddenly it could cost a lot of money. So tribal knowledge is any unwritten information that is not commonly known by others within a company. We want to get rid of tribal knowledge. Part of the way of uh, rewarding documentation and prioritizing documentation. All right, on to disaster recovery plan. A disaster recovery plan is a documented, structured approach with instructions for responding to unplanned incidents. This step-by-step -step plan consists of the precautions to minimize the effects of a disaster so the organization can continue to operate or quickly resume mission critical functions. Typically, disaster recovery planning involves an analysis of business processes and continuity needs. Before generating a detailed plan, an organization often performs a business impact analysis and risk analysis, and it establishes the recovery time objective and the recovery point objective. Sure does. That's when in time and uh, how long to recover. Right. So uh, the biggest things about disaster recovery plan, we're just, we're, we might do even a whole topic on DR. But, oh, we totally could. Yeah, uh, what we'll do is we'll break down the steps really we found that work best for our customers uh, to follow. So the first thing is to, is to establish the scope. You know, that's the thing we talked about earlier is about getting the business to give you a list of the things that are most critical to the business and then working from that list as the most critical to least critical down through uh, the list, right? 
Exactly. You you gather relevant uh, relevant infrastructure documents. Hopefully, those are things that you did in the infrastructure redundancy phase. You have documentation. You have uh, service maps that might show all the different underlying services of a larger application. Yep. Um, you, you have, have uh, uh, verified charts. Yeah, you have verified. You got uh, power and redundant uh, network connectivity on both, like the storage and uh, traditional networking side. Uh, power is good. All these things should be documented. In case uh, ever you need, if maybe you, you're, you're part of some compliant thing, so it's good to have these things documented, um, uh, and and gathering the right info. Absolutely. So identifying the most serious threats and vulnerabilities and the most critical assets. So this is like we talked about before, but also the idea of threats and vulnerabilities. You have an internet-facing application uh, that has the p potential of being exploited somehow. Um, these are all things to think about. When you look at that top five or top 10 list from the business, you should also evaluate uh, vulnerabilities and threats uh, to, yep. from external entities. Reviewing uh, the history of unplanned incidents and outages and how they were handled. So doing things like incident response plans and documentation mm -hmm. of what happened, when it happened, why it happened, doing a, you know, critical analysis and critical path of what, uh, how to prevent that outage from happening again. These things are important in a DR because this really helps the business uh, and uh, IT in general understand the applications they, they manage and not even just a disaster, but even uh, general documentation about how to recover from unplanned outages too are a thing uh, that's important to do. So identifying any current DR strategies, even DR strategies could be that you send your tapes uh, offsite or you send uh, backups offsite. These are all things that are good strategies in general, but they might not identify some of the business things that are happening. You might be able to restore data, yeah. um, but what happens uh, if you only have one data center and you can't process payments because there's some underlying service that exists within the infrastructure. These are things to look at when you do, uh, and making sure they're in, involved in the scope of the project. Uh, right. Identifying any emergency response teams, uh, we've had a client where if the actual system, the the IT system was down, they could actually do work with paper documentation. Um, it's oh, not yeah. it's not great, but it's a way to continue serving your clients and uh, continuing to make profit. So that even you know, going back old school necessarily isn't a terrible way if the business has a way to to immediately reincorporate that data quickly into its primary systems when they're back online. Having a management review and improve the disaster recovery plan. This is super important because everyone needs to uh, know what the state of DR is. And, uh, right. you know, if you don't keep people uh, involved, especially management, to, to uh, see what you've done and let them know of what uh, deficiencies you have and approve that that's okay, that's a difference between having a job and not having a job. Well, yeah, no, it's almost like even disaster recovery success depends on ownership and buy-in from management. True. Having them approving it, having them driving it, it has to be owned at the top or it doesn't work at all. You might not get the funding you need to do DR correctly too. So yeah, all these things really help it you right into it, yeah. um, in the sense of being able to get that. Uh, you need to test the plan. So either this be bi-yearly or yearly. Really, it's a super important. I've seen businesses that have spent millions of dollars of DR plans and like have mm -hmm. tested it once or twice. And, you know, yeah. they'll have a yearly review and they go, oh, well, we're 
We did an internal test, and we're actually not going to test the failover of internet connectivity or uh, different exactly. things. Exactly. And it's rough to do all that work. Um, it's scary because really the idea of doing a DR plan, uh, you know, it's not it's not even a terrible idea to do it uh, during the day if it's right. been tested a few times because you need to see what happens. Maybe there could be a network condition that doesn't exist at night if you do your DR plan and testing on a weekend on a on a saturday night at midnight you know it might not be the best case of actually testing how things will happen in the real world and that goes right into uh advanced technology like the big players such as netflix who have their chaos army of monkeys right mm -hmm. the chaos monkey that goes and randomly deletes vms can your business randomly survive uh, something coming by and deleting a vm that's how robust Netflix is, right? So right. that's the kind of things to think about that you're leading toward. Charlie's absolutely right. Run DR in the middle of the day and be ready for it. That's the kind of thing to know whether or not you can actually survive during the middle of the day. Right, exactly. And yeah, I probably wouldn't recommend to do it in the middle of a holiday season if you sell products, but right. do it on the lowest off point season you got. So if you do go down, um, you know, make it a learning <laughs> lesson, and but don't make it impact the business yeah. substantially. Don't do the a, point is we're trying yeah. to say make it a good test. Right. Be smart about it. Exactly. So after the testing, it's important to do uh, updating, and updating is a consistent thing. You know, this DR recovery mm. plan really should be a living document, in the sense is that most likely you're adding new services and applications uh, yearly, right? So oh, yeah. really, part of the process and using product management and going through and maybe the end of a a cycle before the closeout and lessons learned of a project is, is you might have a process in which you update and review for DR. And is this an application, right? That's worth to have oh, DR yeah, and does a business rely on this for critical use? If it doesn't, great, maybe you, uh, but you should still have that documented and signed off of from someone in management to let them know that, hey, we did uh, an overview, You here's our findings. You sign off that you don't want this to be DR'd, so. Right, and things change, sometimes it, might fall off the list of critical apps as right. it sunsets. These are things you want to update all the time because the cost you're putting into it is going to only be able to be recovered through surviving outages. So you want to minimize how much cost you put into it. And the way to do that is always update that plan. Right. And then the last thing really we find is implementing a DR plan audit. So this is on a, a quarterly basis or some kind of schedule that fits your business. To verify oh, yeah. all the things are in place. If there's any resources or teams that you formulated in case of a disaster recovery, make sure they're still around, right? Yep. People change make and sure things change. Nice. And really, it's just a it's a way of reviewing everything um, and making sure that everything is still applicable. Because uh, when you do your test, you don't want to have a whole lot of time, especially if there might be a lot of ongoing projects, to rush in and out all this other DR work because you didn't do it all year long and there's a test next month. Uh, is condensed and uh, may maybe even puts your business at risk for when the DR plan happens. So do these things, Absolutely. test these everything, check it out, and make sure you have your uh, teams uh, documenting things uh, is super important. Okay, project management. Charlie, you're the expert in this. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about Sure. So really, product management is the use of a consistent set of product management methodologies, allow really for a narrowed focus and converts unbridled growth into methodical and reportable expansion of business. 
that as we talked as a business is small and maybe grows into a medium or a medium to a large and that cycle is very short because maybe mm -hmm. your product is amazing and you need to scale up every aspect of the business um really that is a common uh uh event that happens during expansion and really this is a way to slow things down a little bit be methodical and understand what each project does for the business and then have a way to report that to the business to understand where the business is and what um where you are and the projects that you're trying to complete and uh letting yep. making sure everyone is very well aware of all those things so the common approaches we're going to talk about for this segment is waterfall agile and hybrid okay Doo -doo -doo -doo. So waterfall methodology is really a method that is linear and sequential. Waterfall development has distinct goals for each phase of development. So think of waterfall as the way water falls down a mountain, right? It has a path that it follows and it really doesn't very often ever jump from one uh, ledge to another, right? right. Gravity is consistent. <laughs> so usually water that finds a path will keep going that path. And waterfall methodology is that we're going to uh, do a feasibility study. Then based on that, we're going to kick off the project. Then we're going to do, right. uh, we're going to create the database. And then when the database is done, we're going to create the UI. And when the UI is done, we're going to do testing. And that's very sequential method. No overlap of effort. All the work is really focused into one singular phase of the project or, yep. uh, you know, cycle of the project. And then it moves on to the next. And that's the idea of waterfall. It's the, probably the most commonly used in traditional uh, methodology of product management today. One of the newer ideas of product management is being agile. And this is defined as really an iterative team-based approach. And this approach emphasizes on the rapid delivery of an application and complete functional components. Usually when you hear the word agile, you hear the word scrum. Um, mm -hmm. These are all ideas of being dynamic with issues that arise from the project. So as projects and managers always know, progressive elaboration is a very common thing. And one mm, of the terms you, read, you learn when you do product management uh, courses and study. And agile really is the idea of uh, maybe uh, in the time scope and cycle of what the application needs to be completed by, maybe a traditional waterfall method won't work. So maybe in an agile mm. sense that you might be like, we're going to build a database and the UI at the same time. Uh, and we're going to start doing testing on those functions as soon as there's ability to do testing uh, available, right? A waterfall right. methodology might be like having spot checks by the developers, create an application, and then there's a distinct phase of testing that, that goes through. Agile, you might even do UAT testing when there's four parts of the application module that haven't even been completed yet or even touched. And really what that allows for is a, a reduced time to market and uh, it has the benefit if you have a good team that understands it to keep almost a more uh, precise approach of uh, delivery because you might even have components that are uh, checked off by developers as they're completed and you can kind of even watch uh, how a developer is doing completing their tasks a lot more with yep. agile because you know a scrum meeting might be in the morning and they go you got these three things to do and when you check in your code, you got to say that you have them completed, ready for testing. And like, it lets you be more on top of the project and uh, really is more of a deeper kind of integration as a business into project management. And then a hybrid is just really the methodology that uh, accepts the fluidity of product pro uh, projects and allows for a nimble and, and nuanced approach to the work. So it's kind of the mix between a little water. Each. Yeah, a mix between waterfall and agile. You know, you might uh, still do a traditional this 
piece and this piece and this piece, but agile, adding some agile into that mix might be like, well, because we found this huge issue, we really need to start working on phase seven too. And maybe you might be a little bit more open, but maybe you won't complete phase seven as you might've done in agile, but maybe you'll get those dependencies required to continue the, the, the traditional waterfall method of getting the pro projects completed. So that's really the idea of hybrid is a mix really between waterfall and agile. Okay, change control. Great. All right, yeah. So uh, one of my favorite things, <laughs> is one that, of the things I've I, done a lot I, of. I doubt it, but um, <laughs> it's a necessity. You're, we've we've you're come right. to the conclusion it's a necessity. Here's the thing. Change control is a systematic approach to managing all changes made to a product or system. The purpose is to ensure that no unnecessary changes are made, that all changes are documented, that services are not unnecessarily disrupted, and that resources are used efficiently. When you do change control, it's like that receipt at the store. The reason why you have the receipt is so you can go back and get a refund. It's the same thing about uh, those weird numbers on your milk that's not just the expiration date, but something else, which is telling anyone that looks at it when that milk was made, what line it came off of, right. what, uh uh, other details they might have about it, right? So all that is part of their change control process because they can go back and look at what happened. Uh, so for specifically in IT, the, the generics that you want to look at for change control are documenting the change request, number one. Mm -hmm. That means writing down what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, and that is... And when uh, you're going to do it, yeah. Exactly, and when you're going to do it. That's your source of record for what happened. People are going to go back and look at that only when there's a problem. So be sure to write it down the right way. Make sure it's concise. Make sure it says exactly what you're going to do. And CIA, right? Or CYA. It's totally CYA. Say. Yeah, CYA. It's CIA level. <laughs> it's CYA, CIA level. Crap. <laughs> yeah, no, it's CYA. And it really is. Yeah. I mean, really, you know, as a formal process in documenting it, as long as you stick to say to what you're doing, and it's been approved, really, I mean, as long as you really were honest about the associated risk with the change, it's all good, right? And that's yep. the idea is it's not to nail anybody, but it's to improve things. And maybe uh, more oversight will have to be done in the future in case issues that arise. But really documenting, like you said, is the first step. Yep, exactly. All right. So um, the next one down on the list here is formal assessment. Uh, this is easy to skip. This is easy to think there's no value here, but engaging a third party to do a formal assessment or performing the formal assessment yourself, these are the things that would build your change control into a process that's effective. By right. having that sort of uh, service performed or doing it uh, methodically yourself, you can be assured that how things are being approved, how things are being implemented, and also how success uh, can be gathered, right? So all that is uh, part of being able to look at it from end to end. So moving down the line here with change control, planning. Planning almost should be on the top. The title it should be planning and the whole uh, topic <laughs> should be planning uh, because that is how you make sure you don't uh, fail. Uh, doing things in production is not the way to do it. Not doing at first, things, anyways. Right. Not at doing first. things in a lower environment is the way to start off. And by getting that uh, taken care of, then you're ensuring success, right? So planning it and testing that plan. Oh, that's number four, well, designing and testing. Yeah, so, and also, too, it's like, you know, common uh, companies that have change control have something like a change board, right? 
maybe oh, yeah. maybe Absolutely. a weekly meeting that goes through all the changes for the upcoming week and they verify all maybe some of those things don't overlap or they shouldn't right don't take off the database when i'm trying to update the application on this time and like there's exactly. a lot of planning that goes into these changes um so a change board or a change review uh, where people get on a call is common or a cab i think people call them change advisory boards and stuff Usually right. there's some management and executive level oversight into those things so they understand what is trying to be accomplished and when and making sure those things that those those overlaps that happen aren't gonna be detrimental to the changes that are going on. So yeah, planning is huge. Yep. All right. Uh let's see. So the designing and testing kind of goes into that planning portion of it, but it's the active idea of running it through dry runs and being able to mm -hmm. make sure that uh whatever you're implementing is is gonna work. So you wanna add your testing to your documentation of your change requests. You usually wanna add uh what the backout idea would be as well. This is where you would make sure the backout plan works as well. Yep. You would want to val validate that maybe the the way you do this job is you make sure there's a snapshot available for the system prior to working on it. Mm -hmm. Things like that is how you design change control that can be effective. And hopefully document that you, uh, if you are doing a prod one, right? Cause some lower environments not, might not require so much change control, but yeah, uh, right. documenting that you did lower environments first too, to help kind of usher along that prod release to let them know I've done my due diligence and we've designed and tested this change uh, throughout the entire stack. Absolutely. Want to go ahead and, and talk about implementation and review here, which is our number five item on change control. This is where the people that are uh, signers of approval are stakeholders. You want executive layer uh, uh, folks who are uh, dedicated and assigned to the success of the product or project that they're on. These are the people that are going to sign off on changes should be a way for all the changes to uh, move up to a point where they can be viewed from above to see if there's any you know clashes between changes or things that might need to be scheduled in a different order uh, that is where they might add or change the way you do your change because it might conflict with something else this implementation logistics is uh, where we're talking about the review and sign off of that kind of uh, a change control process right All right, so the last item we got here is our final assessment sign-off. Once you have written down the process and procedures for your change control, and you're pretty positive that this is the way it's going to work, there's a real tendency to just run right into production with it and start using it immediately because the benefits you get are so great. But the one thing you want to make sure you cap all this work off with is a final assessment and sign-off. Uh, when you buy a book, you buy a book cover to cover. When you do a change control plan, disaster recovery plan, any planning where executives are approving things, the way to do it where the full buy-in is felt and understood is to have a final assessment and sign off. There might be some tweaks and adjustments that would be easier to adjust prior to running into prod, uh, even for this process running into production, running the process, uh, than to stop it, change it in the middle of the stream. So making sure that you get a final assessment and sign off. Everyone's clear about what's about to happen. Everyone's clear about the change itself and also this whole uh, process should you be building it. Right, and like five and five, we talked about sign off and actually it could be separate sign offs and that's kind of what we mean by six. Because five right. might require a review and sign off an executive 
uh, over your uh, area that the work is okay, but the actual final assessment and sign-off of the actual change request might even be done by the change control board or someone different, right? right? And that those are the people that, like, you won't even be able maybe to get to some of those later phases of the gates of doing a change until you have the review done. So all these things are kind of think of is that, you know, traditionally, even from a lot of clients that I've seen, is the execs are not the final sign-off. That's just the last gate to get to the last gate to be able to get scheduled. So. Um, great things always have assessments and sign off and make sure you're covered and everyone understands what's happening for the change. Okay, now it's time for our weekly top 10. Oh yeah, let's do it. That's my best friend. Okay, everybody, let's do it. Top 10 stabilizing ideas. Number one, test your backups by doing restores. I see a lot of people that have backups, but they don't test their restores. In order to make sure you can count on it when the time is needed, you've got to be testing on your backups to validate that they are functioning and that they're what you think they are. Number two, use code repositories for server network configs. We're already storing our application code in repositories. As infrastructure moves toward a code-based system, you're going to want to start storing them in repositories so you can reference them, and then you can take iterations on them, look at the history, all that great stuff. Number three, create calendar events for renewals. A lot of times something might start to expire and you'll get a notice in your inbox. That's no way to run it. You've got to make sure you know when things are expiring. Set a calendar event for anything you pay for, any subscription basis, any certificate. You'll get notified in a timely manner where you can take care of the problem before it becomes an issue. Number four, Use multiple vendors. There's no reason to be stuck with one vendor. One of the biggest things you can do is suffer an outage because a vendor has an outage. Not a good look for your company. Make sure you have multiple vendors across the uh, spectrum of your business. Number five, implement change control processes. What happened, when it happened, if something went wrong, all those things you want reportable so you can improve your process in the future. Number six, deploy with automating tools. What you want to do is make sure as you move toward a code-based infrastructure that nobody is logging into a box to make changes or configuration settings. Anything a human does is going to be something that could be an error or some sort of a mission. If you have drift like that, it's not acceptable. Everything should be able to be spun up uh, by thinking about what exactly should be uh, done to the box and codifying that. Number seven, adhere to standards. Make sure you are looking at things like TOGAF and things like ITIL. Make sure you're using um, uh, PM-based resources that know what they're doing and have PM uh, certification that are studying the PMBOK, all those things, because that is what you want for success. Other people have been before you. No reason to reinvent the wheel. Number eight, executive buy-in. You have to have this. If you don't have executive buy-in on your stabilization tasks, these are looked at then like lights on activities. They can wait until later. Not so with stabilization. It's stuff that you have to do to let the business grow properly. Number nine, retool as needed. Make sure you turn around and look in the rear view every once in a while. Make sure that the road you're traveling is going the direction you want. Did that metaphor work? Not so sure. But the idea here is that you look at what's going on and you go, okay, well, let's reanalyze that. Is that going right? Are we using the right tool? Are we doing it the right way? This looks good. Does it need any improvement? Okay. No? Moving on. Number 10. 
improve uptime and reduce outages. Kind of like an overarching stabilizing idea, but you can do it methodically and you could do it with metrics that you report up to executives. With this uh, idea, you can make sure that the business becomes more and more stable, allowing it to go into our next phase, optimization. And there you go. That's the top 10 stabilizing ideas for this week. Thank you very much. And back to you, Charlie. Hey, great top 10 segment this week, Lloyd. Awesome job. Awesome. Thank you. And now it's time for our weekly mailbag. Weekly mailbag. Mailbag. Bob M. from Phoenix, Arizona, wrote in on last week's robotic process automation episode asking, how do I convince management to implement RPA services Mm. without the negative notion it will remove jobs? Good question. Well, that's a great one. What I would tell Bob is, the way you want to approach it is discuss the facts that RPA in its own way replaces the rote and repetitive tasks that employees have to do throughout the day. If you could replace those, they could be maximized to help customers or work on special projects. By eliminating those tasks, you're not eliminating the job. You're right. just getting rid of that extra work and freeing them up for uh, the ability to work on other things. Exactly. And really, the thing is, is let's not joke. RPA is an in-depth process. To have a business that doesn't want to invest in RPA at all because of the notion of not uh, of, of eliminating jobs is like, it's laughable in a way in the sense that there's so much work that has to go in to get RPA so to start. Work. Like, you wouldn't even choose... Uh, a potential job eliminating RPA process like for years probably, right? Like oh, you absolutely. look for easy wins. You don't look for uh, massive changes using robots. It's really something, like you said, it's the, the mundane things that you can even squeeze a few more hours out of, of your employees doing work that values the business. Right. Uh, not that their work before didn't. It's just that like if, there's, it. if it's a simple process and it's just because you have the spirit systems where the process has to be done manually, those are great things for RPA. And people really and shouldn't have to out. log in to different sites yep. to do different work just to do that, right? So, No, you're totally right. And I guess the last thing to say about the whole subject is a lot of times we can't augment staff. We don't have this uh, facility or the uh, funds to augment staff. Mm-hmm. So by using RPA, you can actually increase the ability of your people to do work. So Awesome. Yes. Thanks. That was thanks, great. Bob. Thanks, Bob. Great question. So uh, you can send your questions in the comments to techweek at nxt-lvl.co. Um, you can quiz us on uh, things that you want to see for maybe uh, next or for future episodes or questions about past right. episodes or if you nail us saying something completely wrong, hey, that's that's what happens too. That's so fair. We we like those too. We'd be happy to see some funny ones. So feel free. Totally. 